good, well, good morning. My name is Aubrey. If we haven't met before, I do hope to meet you uh, soon. I want you to think back a long way to the year 587 BC. Most of you weren't around then. If you were around, the mighty Babylonian empire destroyed Jerusalem. And when Babylon conquered a nation, they didn't rest complacent with just winning the battle. They set about destroying the identity of the people they beat. They set about destroying the religious and the political and the national identity of the conquered group. And and the way they would do that is that they would take the professional class, the ruling elite of the country that they conquered, and they would deport them from their native land. They would send them in exile to Babylon, the capital of the Babylonian empire. Now, when this happened to Israel, Israel had a prophet, a false prophet, a religious leader by the name of Hananiah. And he told this ruling class of Israelites that had been deported to Babylon, he told them that God was going to bring them back to Jerusalem in just two years' time. God, however, through the prophet Jeremiah, had another plan altogether. God tells this deported group of elite ruling Israelites, This is in our Old Testament reading, Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 5. God tells the exiled Israelites, it's going to be a long time. You're not coming back home in your lifetime. So I want you to stop renting. I want you to settle down. I want you to engage in the life of the city of Babylon. Build houses, plant gardens, And most striking of all, God tells these Israelites, his people, to serve the city, the city that conquered them, that murdered and raped and pillaged. I want you to serve that city. Quote in in verse 7, seek the shalom, the flourishing, the peace and the flourishing and the prosperity of your enemy city. And he even tells them to pray for it. No, I don't think he means pray against it. Pray for it. So while living in Babylon, they are not simply to increase their tribe in some ghetto within the city. They are supposed to use their resources to benefit the city. In other words, in Jeremiah 29, God is saying to these Israelites, stop thinking so disproportionately about yourself and your experience and give some of your thought to your neighbors and their experiences. Now, we can understand how this would be hard for Israel, can't you? I mean, can't you understand that not long ago, these people were living in Jerusalem, a very different culture. And these Israelites, they were running the city. 
They were the ruling elite of Jerusalem. So they had recently dwelt in their own city and they were the source and the stewards of their city's culture. And now they're called by God to indwell a different culture on different terms. Listen again to verse four. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile. From Jerusalem, the culture that you were the source and the steward of, to Babylon. They're not the ruling majority anymore. Now they are the despised minority. They're not trusted. They're distrusted. Babylon is not their home. It's home for their neighbors. And so surely we can understand the kind of identity crisis these Israelites were going through. But notice, God gives them a new identity. God calls them to become a missionary community in Babylon. A missionary community whose sole purpose is to be God's presence of love in the city where they live not the culture they remember. Love the Babylonians. Go looking for them. Stop hiding from them. Find them and manifest the love of God to them. Now fast forward the story 600 years. And this God who called Israel into exile in order to be a missionary community whose sole purpose is to manifest the love of God in its culture, God himself puts himself in exile, leaves his home, takes on flesh, and come and dwells among a people who reject him. And through his life and through his death, and through his resurrection, he lived a missionary life. And he set us free. And he empowered us. And he said, now you do the same. You see, Jeremiah 29 is a picture of the church. It's a picture of the church called to be a missionary community whose very purpose is to manifest God's presence of love in the culture, not that it remembers, not that it longs for, but in the culture it actually lives in. And the church listened to God's voice. Boy, did the church do this. The church listened to God's voice in Jeremiah 29, and it followed God's word in Jesus Christ. And the church learned how to be a missionary community. And for century after century, in city after city, in culture after culture, the church did this. The church lived into its purpose to be the presence of love in the city, in the culture that it actually lived in. And the results were amazing. Let me tell a story that I've told before. It's a story a friend of mine, Greg Thompson, the former pastor of Trinity Presbyterian Church in Charlottesville. It's a story he created that has helped me understand a little better what the successful work of God's missionary church looked like. The story goes like this. I need you to use your imagination, okay? I want you to imagine a woman 
let's say she lived somewhere between the second century and the 16th century. So you got a pretty broad stretch of time. Um, she lives generally in the region of the Mediterranean. Okay, so as far south as north, northern Africa, as far east as modern-day Iraq, as far west as modern-day Spain. I guess I should be reversing that for you to think. As far north as Scotland. Okay, just pick your favorite place in any of that region. Now, I want you to imagine that this woman, out of some terrible necessity, has to go on a journey. She has to make her way on a journey across the remoteness of that world. And so she leaves whatever shelter is hers. She wraps herself in some sort of cloth and she steps out into the darkness and the wind. Now, can you see her? She steps onto her path and she bends her long, long, lonely course toward whatever town or village or city holds her hopes. Now, this woman, in all likelihood, would have spent her days scanning the horizon for one thing. Do you know what that would be? She would spend her days looking on the horizon for a church. Sometimes these are huge cathedrals. Some of you have been to these in Europe. These massive stone structures full of light. Sometimes they were small parishes on some side street. Sometimes they were monasteries tucked behind walls. But no matter what kind of church it was, all of them shared something in common. And here's what it was. They had a deep commitment to being the faithful presence of love in the midst of their time. And this is why she would have been looking for a church because of all the things she could have known about the church. The one thing we know that she would certainly have known and most people would know is that the church was a place whose purpose was to welcome, to be a light in the darkness a place of rest, a place of presence in the midst of absence. Its purpose was to be the presence of love. We know this is the case. One of the reasons we know this is the case is because we found um, in, in, through archeology span and history all over the Mediterranean area, all over this, this region of the world, these churches had manuals they had these written guides with rules for receiving guests. Not just an informal agreement. You joined these communities, your membership affirmation, you signed up for how to receive guests. Now, I'm going to read one to you, just a little bit of one. This comes from the Benedictine rule. It was written in the 6th century in Italy. So if you picked your woman in Italy in the 6th century, here you go. Quote, all guests who present themselves are to be welcomed as Christ. For he himself will say, I was a stranger and you welcomed me. And once a guest has been announced, the superior and the brothers or sisters are to meet with him with all the courtesy of love. The abbot 
shall pour water on the hands of the guests. And the abbot with the entire community shall wash their feet. Great care and concern are to be shown in receiving poor people and pilgrims because in them more particularly, Christ is received. Now, isn't that beautiful? The church saw that its role was to be the community that looked for and welcomed the stranger, the wanderer, the neighbor. So this, this woman that we're imagining, it's not just her, it's hundreds of thousands of other men and women and children, some who are hungry, have been driven by the absence of food. Some who are diseased are driven by the absence of aid. Some exploited are driven by the absence of justice. And some are sinners and they're driven by the absence of grace. And they find in the church care, very personal care. It's really important for us to understand that part of church history is the way we've cared for men and women and children. The church has a rich history of offering the most careful attention to the most intimate needs that human beings have. In our lighted windows, they found the consolation of knowing they were not alone. In our open doors, they found the possibility that they could be welcomed. In our embrace, they found the return of dignity. In our kitchens, they found fullness and joy. Think about it. Warm bread, stew, the gladness of wine. Inside our walls, in our rooms, they found rest. And in our farewells, they found warmer clothes and heavier bags and the benedictions of God for their journey. That's what they found. Very personal, attentive care. But they also found something else. They also found public concern. And this this is really important for us to understand because when they came to churches, what they would find, churches or monasteries or parishes, they would find communities of men and women living in these churches who cared not just for the individual that showed up on their doorstep, but they cared for their cities. It's the church in history who began to invent and nurture systems of education. It's the church that invented universal education. It's the church who were the ones that worked with local officials to build new structures of economies so that it wasn't a peasant caste system anymore. It was the church that worked with local officials to rewrite the law. It was the church who were the ones who developed strategies for, for universal medical care. And they developed new forms of architecture and music that we still travel just to go see them and hear them. You see, the church didn't just provide for personal care. The church also offered public care. Now, isn't that beautiful? It's just so beautiful to see the church history that it lived out Jeremiah 29. It followed in the footsteps of Jesus into every square inch. It's beautiful. 
But it's also painful. It's painful to see our history because it is painful that our neighbors are still wandering. So many men and women and teenagers and children in our city are still driven by absence. For some, it's the same old wandering. People in our world still feel great needs. Many millions of people still lack basic physical necessities. And many in our own city still live every day with the absence of justice and the absence of grace. This ancient pilgrim, pilgrimage for basic necessity continues to happen in our world today. But there's a new wandering in our world today. So many people in our world today, in our city today, suffer a different suffering. They suffer the lack of meaning. We live in an age that is marked by deep ambivalence about the nature of reality, a deep confusion over identity, a, a deep anxiety. Can our government make it? Can our society continue. We no longer live in a time where the danger is simply dark paths and the threat of bandits. In our age, we are wandering through the uncharted abyss of meaninglessness with incredible forces that are political and economic and technological threatening us. And when we see this, it is painful. It is painful to look and to see people wondering. There's a second reason that when I read Jeremiah 29 and I look forward through church history, it's not only beautiful, but it pains me. A second reason is that when people once wondered, they looked for the church, but they don't anymore. Our neighbors are not looking for the church. Scholarship on the state of Christianity in the contemporary West, whether it's from, from social scientists or theologians or historians, it basically all agrees. Christianity is in a precipitous decline. And this is not simply, don't listen to the false prophets. This is not a short thing. This is not about to be over. It is a settled fact that for a long time, we are in exile, way past our lifetimes. We are like the Israelites in exile in Babylon. This is not a short season. And this is why Jeremiah 29 is so important for us right now. And while that means a lot of things, one of the things it definitely means is that when our neighbors suffer and wonder, they are not going to look for the church. They do not think of the church as a place where they will find shelter. And this brings us to a third reason that the beauty of our history provokes pain. Because we, the church, are not doing a very good job of looking for our wandering neighbors. Think about it this way. The Benedictine rule that I just read to you, that comes from a chapter called The Porter. 
there was a, a whole chapter where you had to select somebody who uniquely embodied the vision of the community, whose entire responsibility was to sit at the gate and look for the neighbor and make sure the whole community gathered when the pilgrim came and greeted them as Christ. I don't think we do that now with as much skill and relevance as the church once did. And that's painful to see. It, it's, it's, but it's totally understandable though, because like the Israelites in Jeremiah 29, who were forcibly deported from their majority culture, just like that radical culture shift drove them into an identity crisis where they spent all of their energy thinking about themselves and their experiences, that's where the church is right now. The church in the West and here in Harrisonburg was once the majority culture. Our vision was widely shared and it made sense for people to claim Christianity in a public way. But we're now being called to live differently. We are now the minority and our vision of the world is ignored and our influence is waning and our goals are held with suspicion and contempt, especially in a university town like this. And so what this means is that the church in America and our church here in Harrisonburg and the other churches here in Harrisonburg, we, like the Israelites who once lived in Jerusalem, who once dwelt in our own culture as both the source and the steward of the culture, we are now being called to dwell in a different culture on different terms. We are not in Jerusalem anymore. We are a missionary church living in someone else's culture. We're not the majority, we're the minority. We're not trusted, we're distrusted. Like the Israelite exiles in Babylon, Harrisonburg is not our home. It's our neighbor's home. The church has been moved. In other words, from being an establishment community to being a missionary community. So like the Israelites in Jeremiah 29, we are facing two significant temptations. And these temptations, if we give in to them, will stop us from being a missionary community. The temptations are fear, big bad culture, gonna destroy me and my kids. Fear and urgency. It's apocalyptic, it's happening now. And if we yield to the temptations of fear and urgency, we cannot be missionaries. Instead of patiently loving the city and living in and with the city and laboring for the shalom of the city, we'll do something else. And typically that something else, when churches give in to fear and urgency, instead of being missionary communities, typically they do one of three things. Fortify, dominate, or accommodate. Here's what I mean. Fortify. Sometimes the church, when the culture's changed around it, when it wakes up in Babylon, sometimes out of fear and urgency, it withdraws from culture and finds safety by huddling together in protective silos. And we attempt to hide from the world through various acts of fortification and we build up walls and we create alternative Christian cultures and economies within these walls and we focus disproportionately on our holiness 
while we wait for Christ to return and take us home. Another way the church acts when it gives into fear and urgency is the attempt of domination, to use politics and power to regain control of culture. Let's take back our school system. Let's take back our government. Let's take back the media. Let's take back our neighborhoods and let's do it quickly before any other more danger is done. A third mistake the church makes when it gives into fear and urgency is accommodation. We're so tired of the culture wars, this us versus them mentality. Why can't today be the day that we begin afresh by simply loving everybody? And so we embrace the culture and we're blending in and assimilating with a new morality that's untethered to the Christian truth. And we celebrate the enlightenment of the age while our neighbors slip into the dark. So this is why Jeremiah 29 is both beautiful and painful for us because when we read it, we can see our situation today. Not only are our neighbors wandering, but they are not looking for us and the church is not doing a good enough job in looking for them. And because of all of the complicated cultural reasons I've just summarized, the church, we keep thinking disproportionately about ourselves and our own experiences of suffering and rather than our neighbors and their experiences. Thankfully, there's not only beauty and pain in this passage, there is also hope. God wasn't afraid. It was the exiles that were afraid. When we listen to Jeremiah 29 and our gospel, the end of Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission, and our New Testament reading, 1 Corinthians 15, the longest sustained meditation on the resurrection in all the Bible, when we listen to all of these passages, there's hope. And here's why. Because God loves this world. God loved Babylon. God loves secular America. God loves Russia. God loves Ukraine. God loves this world. He loves our neighbors. God loves our city. And God has placed you here to love this city and to care for it. I have sent you in exile. I put you there. That's what God said. And God promises in Matthew 28, he promises to be with us. I absolutely believe that God promises to build his church and to grow his community and to bear witness to the kingdom of God in this world. So I don't have to be afraid. I struggle with it. At times I'm scared to death, but I don't have to be. I don't have to be afraid, even though I am so sad when I look at the wandering around me and in me. I can have hope because... Christ is risen. So here we are, Church of the Incarnation, here at the beginning of 2023. And one of the things I want us to pray for this year and to grow more skilled at and committed to and focused on is being a missionary church. To find all the ways that we're fortifying, attempting domination, or accommodating. And instead, grow up into our history Let's be a missionary church in this particular city. Let's stop dreaming of the one we left behind. And so this sermon is the beginning of a series of sermons that are last for the rest of Epiphany 
They're gonna take us right up to Lent. For the next six weeks, each week, we're gonna focus our attention on a foundational practice, a different one each week, of a truly missionary church. Six practices that the church, when it is in full-on missionary mode, six practices the church has lived over the past 2,000 years, practices that have rooted the church in different times and places and cultures, foundational practices that missionary churches live out. I'll tell them to you now real quick, but we'll go embracing our particular context, recovering our confession, insisting on human dignity, cultivating virtue, extending hospitality, and reimagining vocation. These are foundational practices from the historic church that if we take them up, they will help us increase our capacity to be a missionary community, faithfully present in the midst of the wounds and the pains and the needs of a culture in which we do not hold power, a culture that we're exiles in. There are many people in our city who are wondering And every day, they are making their way through the pain of the absence of love, the absence of justice, the absence of basic necessities, the absence of meaning. And I know that God loves them, all of these people. He delights in their dignity. He weeps over their grief. He longs for their shelter. And I know that because God loves them, he has put you here. He's put us in this city. And not just our church, but a whole bunch of other churches in this city. The church in Harrisonburg is a community of churches whose entire purpose is to be missionary communities, the faithful presence of God's love in this city. And because of this, I know that the work in front of us, the work of discovering Christian faithfulness in a missionary mode in our time, this work is not in vain. Paul wrote the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, the last sentence of the longest sustained meditation on the resurrection in all the Bible. The last thing he says about the resurrection is this, therefore, because of the resurrection, my beloved brothers, be steadfast immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord, and know that in the Lord, this work is not in vain. It's hard, super complicated, confusing, but it is not in vain. It is not going to fail. As we do these things, as we deliberately and wisely give ourselves to the historic missionary practices of the church, at some point, our neighbor will look for us. And in looking, they will find us because like the porter, we'll be looking for them. And when they find us, they'll find not darkness, but light. Not estrangement, but embrace. Not restlessness, but rest, and in the end, they'll find us as what we long to be, the presence of the love of God in this secular age. Let's pray.